Welcome back. It's Swing Pass. Week five is in the books. New York goes perfect on their Canada road trip to improve to 6-0. Salt Lake heads into Colorado to face the Summit in their home opener in probably the most thrilling matchup of the weekend. Summit come away with a one-goal 21-20 victory coming back at the end of the game. Minnesota gets their third win and fourth tri- four tries at Madison. D.C., has a barn burner up in Toronto and comes away with the road win. Portland goes down in Seattle as the Cascades finally get their first win of the season. Big Memorial Day weekend, Daniel. How was your holiday? My holiday was good. I mean, these this was a fun slate of games. I feel like I didn't really know what to expect coming into this weekend, but there were a few headlining games that obviously did not disappoint. Salt Lake, Colorado is definitely my favorite to watch but I like the upsets that were were brewing at least Toronto it looked like they might pull it off against DC Seattle of course just kind of stomped Portland pretty handily and yeah there's a lot of interesting takeaways from this weekend Minnesota Madison was also a great game that you know felt highly anticipated considering the history of these two teams especially at Bree Stevens Well, let's get started with the premier team in the East, New York Empire. They take care of business on the road at Montreal on Friday, winning 22-18 in a game that started in torrential downpour, but ended with New York just executing once again. And then the next night, they go into Ottawa and put up 30 on the Outlaws as they just kind of run th- it almost looks like a practice session for them as they were so in rhythm coming off of the the rain drench game of Friday and just getting that kind of track offense style in the Outlaws stadium that's been prevalent the first few games there uh New York was just testing things deep they were finding all sorts of su- success with Jeff Babbitt and Bang Yacht in deep space there were no real solutions that the Outlaws could offer uh New York connected on 12 of 16 hooks in that second game while still completing 95% of 300 throws. They were 17 of 20 on their offensive uh, conversions. You know, we've been talking about it now for a couple weeks. This New York offense looks like the best offense ever, and they have the stats to back it up. It, it just looks like there's no stopping them at this point i mean it looks like it looked like there might be something stopping them in the montreal game when it did start in that huge downpour and we saw some miscues some you know early drops and and not great throws but like i don't know just assuming the conditions are are good for playoffs and, and beyond and of course you can never assume that i just don't see any team really hanging with the empire for four quarters montreal looked pretty good against them i think montreal played like one of their better games of the season at least aside from that week one win they had over toronto they generally looked looked good and they were trading blows a lot of that game it's just new york executes at a different level and there's just not much room for teams to really fight back montreal only had seven break opportunities in that game they converted four of them which was kind of surprising their d-line offense has not been that great this season but when you're only getting seven break opportunities in a game that really the conditions were bad for the better half of it 
it still just doesn't matter. You get a guy like Jack Williams, who's just immune to any conditions and continues to operate as a super consistent option. He, he dropped back into the backfield a lot more this weekend because they were missing Solomon Ruschmeyer Bailey and the, the flexibility that offense has to just drop him back, plug in Babbitt downfield to take over for Charles Weinberg. Also get Matt Stevens into the mix, who by the way is third all time in the AUDL and goals. It's just, it's too much. They have too many pieces and they all play so well together. It really is starting to feel like an infinity gauntlet on offense with the Williams, Osgar, Yacht, Babbitt. Uh, it's cruel horsemen. to opponents. Uh, you know, yeah. Ryan Osgar is leading the league in assists through five weeks. He's completing 98% of his throws, which is two percentage points higher than his previous career high. He's got over 3,000 yards in six games. He's got 16 goals to go along with 33 assists. And when you watch him out there, he's just a machine right now. There's, He's decided he's not going to make mistakes anymore. And there really isn't anything a defense can do to pressure the disc away from Ryan Osgar when he just decides, I'm just taking the open looks available to, to me because I can put the disc wherever I want. You know, it, it keeps being repeated because I think it's a perfect quote for him. Uh, the team refers to him as a painter, as a thrower, and that's how he's been for this team. He just, just any anytime there's a little bit of stickiness or something to their offense, they kind of just like use Osgar as the oil to just get everything back on track. And you could keep seeing that in the rain and especially in the red zone where Empire are running these like whirling dervish reset pieces and Osgar will just shimmy open on the break side the exact moment jack williams is looking for him they get him the disc and then Mm -hmm. it's just one two three into the end zone and they do it so much and they do it so well that we just kind of expect it but when you watch other teams try to run stuff as smoothly as the empire are doing it they just don't you know like it's just it's a different level right now for the empire offense the way he he is able to work with Jack Williams and like I, like I expect Jack Williams to have chemistry with most people he plays with because he's that good. But when you Jack take Williams could two have amazing, chemistry. hold on, Jack Williams could have chemistry with a mannequin in like a storefront. Okay, like he <laughs> sure is that kind of driver in an offense. Sure, I think I think there are times where you might see stars entering the same system where there's a bit of conflict or a bit of maybe unwritten competition for touches almost but but the way Osgar and Williams just so fluidly work in this offense especially in the red zone like we were talking about it before the show put those two guys in the backfield literally every red zone possession honestly if they only had each other to pass to I I still don't think defenses could key in on no. either of them I They're I was would... so good at like that just, should be skills, you challenge. know, starting and stopping cuts, like changing direction and finding these tiny windows. And they both have so many throws to get the disc anywhere they want. I was just going to say they should do a skills comp where it's two versus seven and it's just Osgar and <laughs> that, seeing if there's any kind cool. of defensive scheme that could outsmart them in small or larger space. Right. I, I, yeah, I don't know that there is. You tweeted but, it out yeah, but, that is the Jack Williams IO throw the best throw in Ultimate right now? And I, maybe. I love it. I mean, it was 
it was impervious it's to so driving rain on Friday night. Like it, yeah. He was out there in those like Dorothy Elevens, the the red shoes. Where I thought if he clicked them together, he might make him back to Kansas. But uh, Williams was just in control from the moment he stepped on the field. You know, like there, everyone else was sort of so to speak, choking up on the bat a little bit or like trying to, you know, players wearing gloves that don't normally wear gloves. The wind is driving in their faces. All the offense is consolidated. But for Williams, it just looked like he was still playing his game. Like there was just nothing disturbed about anything that's going on with him in the backfield right now. Yeah. And is there ever, like, have you ever, do you remember any time where he looked at least remotely disturbed in the backfield handling the disc? No. I mean, I think, well, I think, you know, the Flyers did it a little bit in the championship game last year. You know, Tim McAllister got that reset interception or block on him, I think. That's true. And they they pushed him upfield a little bit, and he still went downfield and skied like three defenders in a pack at one point in that game. But, you know, I think they they at least made him into more of a downfield receiver which is scary to say but like that's kind of what you almost need to do with Jack Williams at this point it's sort of become almost this fish hook thing where it used to be you'd wanted to push him back towards the disc because he was such an amazing playmaker downfield and it just felt like he came Mm -hmm. up with any disc in his vicinity but now he's such a good decision maker and he's so he's such the prototype for what you want in a offensive QB a QB one that you kind of want to break him out of his comfort back there right like you want to kind of just have him have the disc less you know like I think <laughs> right, right. I think that's what you want like but at the same time they they have so much balance he doesn't really need these Herculean loads I mean I don't think he's completed more than just over 40 passes in a game so far you know like He's still pretty. He had efficient. he had fifty seven okay. completions in, against Montreal. In I mean, rain. yeah, this past of weekend. Course, of course, he sets the high mark in the rain. Well, it was in the rain without without Rushmeyer Bailey, who normally is taking on a lot of those touches. Like Williams was very much a, a handler this weekend. But honestly, Oscar, it's kind of the same thing with him. Like he is getting the disc in his hands more this season than he has than he was last season. I think he's averaging around 30, 30 to 35 completions per game. He was like upper 20s last year. He's another guy that, I, I don't know, it feels better to push him downfield, even though you know both he and Williams can burn defenders deep. There's no question. But with how dangerous they are with the disc in their hands, especially if they're going every other and just like picking their spots and finding these tight windows, I feel like that's when the Empire offense is, is most deadly. Do you think that you know the stars that we talk about have elevated their game or do you think it's the improvements of you know quote unquote the other guys Matt Stevens, John Lithiel, Elliot Chartok who's having an amazing year this year for them again um, he was so good for them in the regular season last year and then kind of had that setback against Atlanta in the playoffs and had to get switched over to D-line and kind of platooned his way through the end of the season, he's back on offense this year, and he looks so good as their sort of release valve thrower, um, always taking shots downfield when he has the opportunity to. I, 
I, I struggle to think of like why why is New York so much better this year than last year? Is it just another year of chemistry and development and year two of Osgar in the system? Are people improving? You know, like what is sort of the secret sauce here? I I don't know that there's one secret sauce. I will say I think Ryan Osgar is having the best year he's ever had. I think he he just looks completely unstoppable this year, whereas last year his first year in the Empire system, he looked unstoppable a lot of the time, but was still maybe taking a few too many shots, maybe forcing the disc when he didn't need to. There's none of that this year. Like there's no there's no throw he's made where I was like, why why would he like test the defender there? Like why would he try to do that? He's taking what's given to him, but he's not he's not really like letting up on the deep game at all. He's completed all 10 of his hucks this year through six games. Last regular season in 10 games, he completed 15 hucks at a 75% rate. So like, I guess the huck, the huck choosiness has mostly been there. Uh, it was mostly there last year too, but it's even more so there this year where he's really not forcing throws. So I, I feel like he has definitely leveled up. And then I just think this offense has optimized everyone's role. Like Osgar touching the disc a little bit more, Jack Williams not being like a pure handler all the time, but still totally able and willing to fill that role. It just, it makes the offense a little less predictable. And especially when you move a guy over like Jeff Babbitt, who's just another, another giant teams have, these poor defenses have to deal with Jeff Babbitt, Ben Yacht, and John Lithio, all these monsters that are capable of putting up huge receiving totals. I don't, they just, I think it's, it's the lineups, it's the chemistry, it's, it's everything. It's Oscar leveling his play. So I, I don't know. I can't point to one thing. Here's, here's one thing that I think that they've visibly improved on and looking at the stats, they've actually metrically improved on. They've become so good in small spaces. We talk about how large this team is. You know, they've got the two-time reigning MVP, six foot six, Ben Yacht. They've got John Lithiao, who's a monster, they've got now Jeff Babbitt on the offense. You know, Jack Williams and Ryan Osgar are both six foot plus. They don't really have a quote unquote small piece to this offense, but there's they've become just this like switch Swiss watch precise unit in the red zone. They're right now fourth in the AUDL, eighty six percent conversion through six games. Uh, they were middle of the pack last year. They were under eighty percent and. I think especially in that Montreal game, again, like when the, the elements sort of condensed the gameplay, it it just felt like it played into what New York is good at right now, which is moving the disc a lot between all of their pieces and waiting to find the pressure point and just attack, attack, attacking it once they find it, you know? They're... I think I think Osgar is a huge part of that. I'm, I'm thinking but back to the championship too. game. You know, like, Yacht? We talk about how in space he's, you know, this legend, but he's kind of modified his game a little bit into almost a width game, especially when they get into the red zone. He's become so good at those continuation cuts and just sort of being available when, you know, it's a quick twitch Williams to Osgar sort of IO little sneaky throw. Yacht's just there. Mm -hmm so many times right now. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for not just sort of, you know, poaching down. I feel like back in the day, he used to just kind of linger and wait for those continuation throws to go and make big plays in space. And now he's sort of setting a lot of things up downfield with his motion. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely like a, a overall team chemistry where everyone, everyone is getting a lot better in the red zone with them. But I, I think of Oscar specifically because last championship game, he had three throwaways in that game. I'm pretty sure every single one of those was in the red zone. And he was trying these, these like blades one just over the top of the one defense. I know for just to complicate things, but I know one was. Okay. Hug. Okay. One was a hug. Then he had two red zone throwaways. I believe he was trying blades on both of them. Uh, and just thinking to that version of Oscar, like I, that, that feels so far removed from what we've seen from him this year, where he's not, he doesn't feel that need to like force the disc into the end zone. If it's not there, he'll, he'll dump it back to Jack. He'll just work the lateral game. They'll find motion with Ben Yacht open. There's a lot more, maybe just more patience on Oscar's part. And I think that's been huge for the New York offense. It's funny that we call it patience. I would almost say insistence. Like he's, he's ratcheted up like his expectations for both himself and like what the unit around him are going to accomplish this year. And you can just see like, they'll, they'll run a good set. They'll get the score. And he's immediately in somebody's ear just sort of like talking about like how they could tighten things up a little bit, you know, just, just tweaking things here and there because every drive is going to be that much better than the last. And I think that that is a marked shift from sort of the all-star ball that they were playing at times last year in New York. This year it feels like, Hey, we want to be like that much quicker when I get the disc on the open side and we're ratcheting around, you should be here at this point, you know, like they're, yeah, they're kind of they're they're sort of competing with themselves a lot of times right now, and the, that that's scary. <laughs> like <laughs> it is, I it almost feels like a like a Carolina type influence on their offense. Like seeing how flowy Carolina was getting at the end of last season, how how patient they could be and just working the disc back and forth, knowing that if they didn't throw the disc away, like they were gonna be fine, and their whole offense was always on the same page. I feel like, yeah, New York felt a lot more reliant on on maybe like a more brute force approach to, you know, just score in under 10 throws per possession. But I I think that that added patience and the added level of chemistry that all these guys have from playing another year together has helped a ton. I do have two, I have two questions for you about the Empire. One, so right now they're converting 71.2% 71.2% of their offensive possessions. So that means 71% of the time, if their offense has the disc, they're going to score. That would be an AUDL record. Of course, last year, the record was set by the Chicago Union. Not far behind them was the Carolina Flyers at 64.5%. Do you think Empire holds on to that percentage, or do you think they come back down to earth a bit? Like, Do you think they set the record for best offense ever this season? Yeah, and I think they hit 70. I think, as we've been talking about, this just feels in their wheelhouse. This is what they're capable of. They're they're not exposing a weak defense or uh, sort of connecting on a bunch of hucks because they're feeling it in a certain game. This is just what they're doing. I mean, they've sort of won in a variety of ways at this point and in numerous set of conditions, you know. The Montreal game is their second sort of rainy condition, slug it out, uh, see who can execute better in a given moment in a tight situation. And nobody does that better than New York. Uh, They did against Philly in week three. Um, 
And then when they have no weather and no adversity, it's just sort of a question of how do you slow them down? Because you're not going to stop them. They're at least going to put up 24 on you. It feels like if there's no adverse conditions, like they're right. just, they're going to fill it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, I, and they, I don't they have disagree. That, they have that tenacity of they don't let up. They, they execute every possession right. for quarters. There is no, there's no bad quarter for them this season. You know, they, they don't have one of those. I would, I would love to actually go back and see how many quarters they've won now through six games. Of the 24 yeah. quarters they've played, I would imagine they've won 20 plus. Tied right. or... And then it'd be, it'd, be cool, it'd be cool to look at the quarters they lost and, and see what went wrong or what the other teams... Well, like you said, it, like act of was. God... I don't right exactly. It's, <laughs> it, it feels like that's the only thing I can slow them down. I think they My, might have lost the final quarter against Philly. I think they might have lost the fourth quarter. I'd have to go and look, but that's possible. I I had a follow up question on Oscar. Is he your first half of season MVP? Yeah, I think so. And he was my preseason MVP too. Um, I was. I can't say that I expected this. I thought he was going to improve. <laughs> I thought it was going to be in a slightly different manner. But yeah, I mean, I don't think that you can really argue much against it right now. Um, I think both Frude and Nethercut, obviously on Colorado, who's undefeated, have some cases to be made. Um, uh, there's still more than half of his season to play, and a lot of teams still have a bulk of their <laughs> schedule. So to clearly yes. choose any kind of MVP favorite I think is a little absurd it's especially early. given New York has played the most amount of games so we just have the most amount of data of them of almost any team but yeah it's Ryan really? Osgar I mean he's it's it's the 98 percent yeah, completion percentage that I, I can't get past like you take a, a guy that put up his numbers last year and then up his completion percentage to 98 it's it's insane he's leading the league in scoring He's first in assists. He's, uh, you know, top 10 in goals. Uh, he has over 3,000 yards. Like, so he's averaging over 500 yards a game on offense. Uh, yeah. And he's doing it all by making, what, six mistakes in six games? One per game. He has four throwaways, a stall, and a drop. That's it. The fact that he, him and Jack Williams have the same amount of throwaways this year. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I, it's, it's probably the most balanced offensive half season I've seen of taking shots, being that kind of dangerous playmaker, able to score, always looking towards the end zone and the lack of mistakes. Like there, I, I don't right. think that there's been a stretch quite like this. Yeah, he he's completed all ten of his hucks this season. That's the most the most hucks completed by anyone. That's still perfect on forty plus yard throws. All right, so I'll spin it back on you. Can is this the best version of Osgar? Can he tune it up even higher? I I don't know how he tunes it up even higher. I mean, he's got three I, seven assist games and a six assist game. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like for for what he does for this offense, like I, like the only way he could tune it up higher is if maybe if he became more of a downfield threat. But I I would say that's a waste of Oscar's ability. If you're if he's touching the disc less in order to get downfield more and, and be more of a goal scorer, 
I just don't, I don't think that's the best version of this offense. So I think with the offense, the way it is right now, I think Oscar is, is playing, you know, about as well as he could be. Sure. Maybe, maybe I want a hundred percent completion percentage from this point onward instead of the, the four throwaways <laughs> in the stall. But yeah, yeah, no, I, I have no pick complaints. It up. No, it's it's an insane pace right now, and it doesn't really feel like there's going to be much disruption to it for New York, uh, especially as they get set to welcome aboard John Randolph. I don't know exactly when he will debut. I figure in the next game or two, but, you know, the rich get richer for New York. Um, yeah. Should we move out? They we should really move out do. west. We should get to the gem of the West division this past weekend, the Salt Lake shred traveling to take on the Colorado summit and the summit's home opener, uh, super anticipated matchup, despite both teams missing a host of college players due to collegiate nationals in Milwaukee. It was still just, I think, you know, potential MVP versus potential MVP and Jordan Kerr versus John Nethercutt and Jay Frood. Um, Salt Lake, I think, played the better game for four quarters they just could not preserve their lead in a tough road environment where it was just anytime Colorado would make a convincing play they'd get 2,000 people erupting behind them and you could just feel that energy carrying them over the finish line towards the stretch as they got the Mm -hmm. 21 to 20 win and uh, super Saiyan performance from Jay Frude who finishes with 11 total scores three blocks uh, damn near 700 yards of total offense and zero turnovers. Um, it just, he had the golden, golden Midas touch that game. It just felt like he could not miss from deep, especially as a thrower. And it's one of those things where I tweeted out, I, and I think most people who watch the game a lot know Jay Fruit is a very good thrower, but I think yeah. Saturday's performance really showed you what he can do with, with the disc. We often think of him as this right. highlight machine playmaker downfield as a receiver, but he he can really help an offense in the backfield. Well, and we saw we saw like a variety of ways he was beating the defense with his throws, right? Like obviously there is the highlight reel, you know, stall six back corner launch of a an outside in flick that was one of the most beautiful throws I've seen this season. Spacing out that was great. Yeah, and he, but he, earlier he had that that really nice IO flick hook. It reminded oh, yeah. me a lot of those nice Zach Norbaum IO flick hooks. Yeah, and, you know, both, they're both lefties. Left, they're both lefties, of course. Yeah, I like the curve of the disc with the lefty. But then there was a lot of Calm just down. like solid chunk gains just as a facilitator in the offense. Like he was working in the backfield some, but mostly initiating from downfield. So sort of playing that that constant cog in the middle of the Colorado offense. I think there was like I I was I was so excited when uh, on the receiving end Jay Frude cut deep and we finally got a, a nether cut to Frude connection. So as a receiver, like he's still dynamic as ever as a receiver, but the ability he has to really take over the offense as a thrower, I think it's just it just ups the ceiling for the Colorado team. Well, and we got one of the best downfield matchups one-on-one I think we've seen all season in Jay Fruit oh, versus Clutton. Salt Lake's Joel Clutton. Every time <laughs> Clutton, the disc went up Clutton to that Clutton skied him a few times, yeah, no, two Clutton, or three. 
it's it's one of those things where it's shark versus shark both dudes just want to make plays and they don't really relent and i think what happened is that clutton made a couple of nice plays in the air just authoritatively getting up over fruit early and big and the thing is is that it just sort of charged fruit up a little bit more i think Oh yeah, you know, like so. it's like sure you you win the battle, but I'm coming for the war, man. Like I'm here all night. You can win a couple of dips right. over me, but I'll get mine. I'm still eating, and that's that's kind of how Jay Fruit played the entire night. Where Salt Lake had a, a three goal lead, a four goal lead. They were up sixteen thirteen or seventeen thirteen, and they had a chance to push it even further with a break opportunity, and. I think that one of the bigger kind of storylines is that Salt Lake was very visibly missing Garrett Martin and a couple of their D-line throwers and left a couple mm-hmm. of break points out there. And specifically, there was this possession where they they had an opportunity to increase on their lead a little bit, and they, they didn't. And to give that opportunity to a Colorado team just waiting to win this game at home, it, it just felt like... Salt Lake kept leaving the door open for Colorado to do what they can do. You know, this this is yeah. what the Summit are capable of. They are a playmaking team who feeds off of high energy. Uh, their defense came up with some great plays in the clutch. Nick Snuska got a great sort of uh, pressure block at the end of the game. Uh, Matthew Agee continues to make plays in open space for them. Cody Spicer yeah. is kind of the, the talisman for their D-line, I feel like. Like, he's scoring it's just this like huge presence for them and everyone seems to just get fired up for it and it just well he does he does the classic disc smash on head celebration so oh yeah who who wouldn't get fired up over that he looks like an angry badger when he does that i love it um he's just (laughs) he was he the the other matchup that i loved watching in this was the cody spicer and jordan kerr um spice yeah. just a little too much for Kerr to move downfield and you could feel Kerr wasn't quite as comfortable as a receiver downfield and so he modified his game into becoming more of a distributor and finished with a game high eight assists and was just I think so clutch for them down the stretch trying to hold off Colorado's playmaking and eventual just sort of leapfrog of them uh towards the end of the game like Kerr, even though they lost, was as impressive as any other game this season. He he had that one sort of elevator down throw where he he like shimmed oh, and kind of like that fell skinny. and then like yeah. uh, kind of like almost like hockey air bounced it to Luke Jorgensen up line. Like uh, he his his ability to be large, you know, he's what six four. And, and sort of have that posture a lot of times as a thrower, but then have these sort of like Cobra quick change of release angle throws around the goal line just makes Salt Lake, they're so good offensively, even down a few of their starters. It just felt like they, they continue to play their game throughout this, this matchup. And Kerr, Kerr feels like he's always just in rhythm too. Like he's always working in the flow of the offense even when he's holding the disc for more than a few seconds like he's constantly like he has these like quick twitch pivots and fakes that just look really good and and just seem to open things up and especially when he gets the disc in the red zone like you just know he has that eye for the end zone where guys know to cut for it too and like there were a few plays where he was just like he would 
get the disc on some kind of initiating or continuation cut. And then immediately after there'd be another continuation cut where he just no hesitation throws it out to space or threads the needle. And yeah, he just, he looks really good playing offense for this team. And and I, I do wonder if some of the added touches were from the absence of guys like Sean Canole and uh, Will Selfridge, who is unfortunately out for the season with an injury. And I, I feel like Kerr is going to pick up maybe more of the throwing load uh, without, you know, that other big throwing cutter. So it'll be worth watching exactly what his role looks like from here on out. But I, I like him touching the disc between 20 and 30 times a game. That feels like the sweet spot for Jordan Kerr. Yeah. I mean, they were clearly in a position to win with him doing that. It, it felt yeah. like, especially at the end of the game, that's exactly who they should be getting the disc to. Um, yes. And it, although Salt Lake still put up 20 goals against a good Colorado defense on the road, there was only four goals in the fourth quarter for the shred. And it did feel like they were missing a couple of those pieces. Just the rest of their attack when they have, you know, Canole and Selfridge, uh, obviously they'll, they'll be missing Selfridge the rest of the year, but like it was that balance and that pressure release that, that really sort of helped the fine tuning of this shred offense. Cause it does feel like if they're not, if they're not scoring, if they're not kind of confidently doing what they want to do, they can get a little demotivated and Colorado is able to capitalize on that at the end of the game when they sort of slowed things down and made it about home crowd energy. We're going to play making space on you. You know, it felt like they sort of shifted the shred away from how they like to play. Right. Right. And yeah, you could, you could definitely feel the pressure of that home environment for Colorado like that that did seem to make the difference at the end because yeah shred actually only scored three goals in that final frame they're outscored seven to three in the fourth quarter and you just saw like a few too many mistakes like a few just pressure situations it's a very young team remember like very little AUDL experience it was interesting coming into this game knowing that both teams were missing several guys for college nationals but I feel like coming in we we both sort of trusted the veteran presences in the Colorado offense in particular, as opposed to Salt Lake. And sure enough, guys like Jay Frude just went off and really could, and Matt Jackson too made a ton of plays late in the game. Like I feel like we don't talk enough about him. Dave Wiseman had the final block on the prayer from Salt Lake. Can we talk about how crazy that ending almost was though? Because <laughs> the Jordan almost Kerr catch almost yeah. came up with that somehow because Wiseman got the block, but then he he did the correct thing. He caught it. But as he went to the ground, it came loose and it went long out of his hands. back yeah. up into the air towards Kerr, but in the most like cruel and vindictive waffling way. Like there was <laughs> if if Kerr would have came up with that, he should get like 100 dexterity in hands on any video game in perpetuity because it was just like it, it would have been an impossible read, but it it fluttered right up into his face and then like clanged to the ground <laughs> yep. next to him and Colorado went nuts and celebrates the win and Kerr's lying on his uh, back just like, "Oh god." It, I know. That was for the rest of that game, if that would have connected, that would have almost taken the game to like a Seattle Madison 2016 sort of level. If if that game would have gotten to overtime, ugh, yeah, I don't even know been. like who 
who would you have considered to have the momentum into overtime if that were to happen? Because it Salt Lake did get the disc back. It, yeah, it was that it was that dumb John Nethercut out of bounds cut for the reset with like five <laughs> seconds left, where they just literally they do a two yard pass. He catches it out of bounds. He's like, oh no. Like, they just needed to complete one pass, the game was over. But instead, they gave Salt Lake a chance to heave it up to the end zone. That was bad, but they got away with one. <laughs> it did sort of feel a little bit, again, like an expansion team game. And I'm, it, it does make me... Because, like, both teams committed more than 20 turnovers. You know, both yeah, teams hovering yeah, right around plus. 50% on offensive holds. You know... 50 sub 50 percent on hawks both teams completing only 91 percent of their throws this was this was very much a a haymaker game you know it was kind of Mm -hmm. feast or famine either you're connecting on the deep looks and you're riding the energy or you're the one kind of getting scored on and dunked on um and i just (laughs) i'm a little curious you know both teams only convert combined they only converted 20 red zone possessions this was uh a again, like a mid-range and huck game by and large. And I just, I wonder now what happens when things tighten up, if the growlers come and play and can kind of play an efficient way that they know how to, to win in important moments. It just, it introduces a question back in my head. Obviously, Colorado is in first place, and I think Salt Lake looks like a top one or two team in the West right now, but it's still the reigning growlers division. What what percent chance do you give a West Division team of winning the AUDL championship this year? This season, I think the percentage is pretty low. And that's because of the existence of Carolina and New York. They just appear like they're playing on a different level from most teams right now. Um, I think that there is the opportunity that they can be challenged by like an Atlanta or DC or potentially in a heightened environment of championship weekend when these expansion teams and potentially San Diego have even more time to gel and put things together. But right now I just like, we were just talking about with New York. They're, they're a historically great offense that doesn't even seem like it's really been pushed or challenged in any way. And they're just playing everything in stride. And until someone can kind of show a challenge to that. It's, it's hard to consider any other team right now. I I just always look at the right turnovers and, and the fact that New York, DC, Carolina, Atlanta are only turning the disc over whatever it is, 10 to 15 times a game on average. It, it, it really is just at another like level than the rest of the league. And I feel like, these West Division battles are always fun. I just I have a hard time thinking forward to them at championship weekends. You never know. It's it's always possible a team plays an extremely efficient game like we've seen twice now from the Toronto Rush, by the way. <laughs> so it doesn't doesn't always matter so much. Like they they can just click one day, and I feel like Salt Lake and Colorado both have it in them. But it, it just consistency wise, and and the ability. New York and Carolina and all those offenses have to just play extremely mistake free. That's, that's really just the biggest difference to me. Like I, I haven't seen like a super mistake free game yet from any, obviously they can play make on the level of a New York or Carolina or Atlanta, like right. Colorado showed that repeatedly on Saturday night. Um, 
but yeah, I think it's yes. it's that four quarter execution thing. It's that not allowing any amount of wallows or stretches where things just get gummed up and don't make sense. Um, and maybe that's maybe that's a good mm-hmm. transition to the game of the week and the Central Division Bortle battle between the Minnesota Windchill and the Madison Radicals. Uh, Minnesota coming into the game one and one. Madison was three and zero. Oh. But Minnesota kind of, uh, I think, outran and out-executed Madison at Bree Stevens. It's the third win in four uh, visits for the Windchill, as we started off saying at the top of the show. Uh, Windchill kind of really reversing their fortunes on the road at Madison after years of failing to get a win there. Um, Windchill defense, uh, especially in their ability, I think, to possess and counterattack against the Madison O-line, led by Abe Coffin for the Windchill, um, was the real standout part for the Windchill win. Uh, they win 19 to 16, but three goals feels a little uh, favorable for Madison because they got a couple of getbacks late in the game. It was a five or six goal margin for much of the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. Winchill really taking over in the third, um, just able to get a lot of pressure and force a lot of mistakes out of Madison's offense. And I think a lot of the fears that we had for this Radicals team kind of coming to fruition at home. What did you think about the Abe Coffin decision to play him on D-line? When I first saw it, I... I mean, in hindsight, I I loved it. I thought that was perfect and kind of exactly what Minnesota needed to win this game. But the initial, like knowing that Nick Vogt, Cole Jurek, and Quinn Snyder were all out, and then you're taking one of your best cutter hybrid pieces for an offense and switching them to D-line, I I questioned it. I think with Will Brandt returning to the lineup, they had more than enough throwers. I mean, they still had Josh Klain, Tony Paletta, Will Brandt, and Rocco Linehan. So I think putting Abe Coffin, who can exist on an island, maybe better than any of those other three, and particularly make plays on defense, as he made that great flying block late as just kind of an emphasis of no easy scores tonight for Madison's offense. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, Abe finished uh, fifth on the team in completions on Saturday night. He was 23 to 25, had 165 throwing yards, three assists, two blocks, and was just visibly, you know, an, the active part of Minnesota's counterattack. And it was all the difference in this game. You know, Madison conversely struggled all night to convert their breaks. They were three of 10. And I think maybe one or two of those came in the waning moments, you know, they yeah. yeah, which is weird. That that to me was like the most unexpected part of this game, just Madison's inability to convert breaks when they needed to. Because that's never been an issue for them, really, well, and in I their history. I think you also look at a season-low six blocks for the Radicals uh, against Minnesota's offense, who for the second straight time at Bree Stevens shows maybe the best ability right now to deal with Madison's zone and just sort of wait for their opportunity and to move the disc downfield. You know, both Josh Klain and Tony Paletto have 50 plus completions and they had three combined throwaways. Uh, both of them finishing almost or up over 600 yards throwing together and just giving Minnesota a visible backbone in the backfield that allowed them to withstand 
Madison's junky looks and trying to get them out of rhythm and just sort of allowing them to continue to move the disc and to continue to, you know, orchestrate good possessions on offense. It felt so similar to last time we saw them play at Breeze when it was the Andrew Roy, Tony Paletto, Will Brandt combo in the backfield. This time you swap in Clay in for Roy and obviously pretty different types of players or so I thought, but this felt like a different Josh Klain. Like this was a Josh Klain that was very content to work the disc around and just take what the defense was giving them. They only completed three of eight pucks on the day. I don't know if Klain attempted any off the top of my head. It, it felt like this was a very, you know, reminiscent of last year's Minnesota offense where it was just very patient, very possession based. And they, they didn't make a ton of mistakes. Klain took one shot. I don't know if it would register as a huck, but Klain took one shot across field earlier in the game. It was kind of a throw to the future, big OI blade looking for a back corner, like kind of timing cut, and he missed it. And basically from that point forward, he mm. played a perfect game. I think in years past, if Reese Stevens, he would take one of those looks and then maybe try a second or third time. That was not the case on Saturday. And especially in the second half, he was just visibly comfortable and wanting to just distribute against Madison. And I thought that was a pretty interesting twist for Acclaim, who's, I, I think, becoming a little bit different thrower right now, coming back from the injury last season and everything. You know, historically, we think of him as being this big pocket passer with infinite range on his hucks. And I think because Minnesota is so successful when they play high possession, high precision offense, he's sort of adapting to that. And he's still such a good thrower that yeah. he can still make all those passes in kind of a, a shorter pass wind chill offense, especially given that they didn't have their deep targets in Cole Jurek or Quinn Snyder and Nick vote, the last of whom who, who will miss the remainder of the season with a uh, knee injury. Um, so seeing Minnesota's ability to sort of adapt and play an alternate. I don't even want to call it an alternate style because they're so successful with it the past two seasons. Um, but, you know, like <laughs> right, they were, right. they were 15 one of their styles on red yeah. zone possessions against Madison. That's, that's a really good number against the radicals defense. A lot of teams break on that goal line against Madison, especially in Bree Stevens and for the wind to chill to just, kind of take all of those opportunities and if, if effectively cash them in, I, I think really shows to a maturation for this wind chill team. Josh Klain finished with 58 completions and 399 throwing yards. Those are both highs from the start of the 2021 season. So basically since he's come back from injury in this new Winchell offense those and are, no hug for him. So it's it is I agree with you. It's cool to see him sort of molding his play style to what what and makes no sense for this offense, right? Like I Oh, okay. He he had one. Right. The stats say he had one. He was one for one apparently, so maybe that that one you were referencing was Oh yeah, he had one to but, yeah, that big yeah, rip right, to the, Rocco Linehan at the beginning of the third quarter is kind of a response guy. 
Oh yeah, yeah, that was a nice. Linehan catch had too. a pretty nice yeah. game. He he had that one Rockaway IO missed assist uh, at one point where he got a little, I think a little cute with the disc. But other than that, he was he was pressuring, and I think his attacking style is something that you need at least in part against Madison's defense. You can't just sort of completely sit at home and and swing and swing and swing yourself to death i think you do have to sort of engage vertically and i think linehan was a very very good option for them throughout the game yeah it is interesting thinking about their receivers that they were missing you know no one went over 300 receiving yards linehan led the team with 276 on the night but yeah, that I guess coming into the game, I was thinking like, oh, they're going to have all these throwers on this O-line, all of these guys that can take deep shots, including the cutters. And so I, I guess I expected Hux to be a bigger part of their offense. But when you think about it and think about the receivers needed at the other end of those Hux, I feel like their their offense just didn't need to force that at all. And without, you know, a go-to guy like like what Quinn Snyder has been in this first part of the season. So I, I think this this style of offense clearly works for them. And it'll just be worth watching if they if they stick to this, if when Zurich and Snyder come back, if they kind of shift back. I feel like last season we we kind of saw a mix of offenses from them. Like oftentimes it was this possession heavy approach. Other times they were relying on cutters to hit those continuation shots. So and maybe that's also just a the nature of playing Madison when you're playing against a tough defense, a tough zone, just needing to be that much more careful with the disc, um, especially when the defense normally is a lot more efficient with their D-line conversions. As well. Are you worried about Madison? Going back to the beginning of last season, they now have one win against Chicago and Minnesota. Yeah, that's true. And zero <laughs> against Minnesota. I... I'm, I guess my opinion on Madison hasn't changed significantly. I did I did think we both picked them to win this game, and I, I'm a little surprised they didn't, but watching them execute and, and the the lack of ability they had on, on defense was a little concerning, but I feel like it was more just like weird, like just not just very atypical for them. So I, I'm not ready to you know, pump the brakes just yet on Madison. I still think they're in line for that third seed in the central division, but it, it does feel like they're still a step behind Minnesota and Chicago where maybe we were, maybe we were on the way to thinking it was a lot tighter. At the, the, top. the discernible lack of pressure was odd. I agree. I that's, that's, I guess what kind of has me worried six blocks for the radicals is just anemic. I, yeah, it was a weird defensive game for them. And maybe Minnesota just figured and, out the right You know, Minnesota has had a lot on. of reps uh, over the years against this Madison zone. <laughs> they have. They've been able yes. to figure out, I think, a rhythm that a lot of other teams struggle to get. But, yeah, it just it, it didn't just feel like, you know, it, Winchell only scored 19, but it never really felt like, they were dispossessed, like they couldn't, you know, convert if they needed to. And on the flip side, it felt like the radicals kind of stepped back into their area of settling in a lot on mid-range throws. And I think that there's sort of a constipation that exists and Minnesota 
knows their matchup so well against the radicals that they kind of know they can bend not break and wait for Madison to unravel on their own. And you could see that in effect in the third quarter on Saturday night where Minnesota just kind of pounced on a bunch of radicals mistakes, scored eight goals in the quarter and blew the game wide open. Right. Right. That was definitely the turning point. Right. And that, having a D line led by Abe Coffin was extremely valuable for Minnesota. Like honestly, their numbers converting seven of 10 D-line conversions like that's definitely their best of the season maybe their best in the last two seasons so I I don't know I feel like do you feel like the coffin decision was just based on personnel this week I'm, I'm really interested on whether he is now just a D-liner for them or if they're just going to continue moving him around because so much of this Minnesota team feels like a, a mix of guys that can play a variety of positions, whether it's offense or defense or a little bit of both. So I, I'm just, I guess I'm just wondering when Minnesota really like zeroes in on set lines or lineups that work, or maybe if they're, if they continue to be missing a handful of guys each week, maybe it is just this ever changing lineup, both so on offense and defense. Abe Coffin has played at minimum seven defensive points in every game he's played this season uh he played 19 on saturday which was Mm a high he pulled 15 times which i think is the other interesting part that they gain from shifting coffin over is that his huge backhand now becomes an asset in pinning uh opposing offenses and kind of winning field position battles i i really like the shift of coffin and i think it might be a little bit in response to watching what Dalton Smith provided Chicago as the union won against the wind chill in week two, right? Like seeing what a mm-hmm. transformative thrower can do for your defensive counterattack when it can generate a fair amount of takeaways or opportunities, I think is, is a trend that you're seeing more and more established throughout the league. Um, you know, I think New York has it to some extent too. the way in which Ben Katz is now completely on a D line. You know, I think they were balancing him a lot more in his first couple seasons in New York. And now he's just firmly on defense and it kind of gives them a full-time quarterback to always work from. Uh, yeah. I, I think that it really behooves teams who can generate takeaways at a top tier like Minnesota's defense can to have then a thrower like a coffin if they can afford it. And clearly the windshield can, you know, this is one of the benefits that we talked about going into the season with them adding so much depth is that now they can have more lineup variety and sort of have more ability to play and figure out where the best matchups are for so much of their talent. Yeah, it's 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 just going to take some getting used to for me because obviously I remember how good Abe Coffin has looked offensively in his time with Dallas and even early yeah. this season with Minnesota. I, the pulling point is super interesting. I think it was it might have been Evan on the broadcast that mentioned he was talking to Coach Ben Feldman before the game and he was like, Abe Coffin is this team's best puller. Just flat out. like He is he's a better puller than anyone else on the team. So in addition to getting that D-line centerpiece, you just you have a guy that can set up your defense for really good field position. So I I don't know. It's it'll be worth watching. I maybe agree that he that might be his fit, 
but it is still hard to deny what he can bring to the offense if that chemistry is. What did you think about some of the well. the tempers flaring in the the home stretch of the season? It got, it got a little uh, chippy, the yeah. The Tony Pelletto and chatter running up the Madison sideline. Dylan the clerk was taking a yeah. It was it was fun. That's a fun, fun central division rivalry. And I feel like especially at Breeze, like it's loud there. Tempers are running high. Both teams really want to prove themselves at the top of the central division. I'm, I'm okay with it. I think it, it, it I don't know if it, I don't know if it felt totally respectful at all times, but I, I think it, it fueled a bit of the fire that, that is this Madison-Minnesota rivalry. It was pretty funny. And in a broad cosmic way that immediately <laughs> after there was that fast break huck to Victor Luo and he skied out Jimmy Kittleson in space and Kittleson kind of caught his ankle coming down and went down in a heap. And Luo could have, I think, pretty easily thrown an assist. There were, there were like, I think there was a two on one forming in the end zone on the fast break. And instead Luo's, mm-hmm. you know, took the injury timeout and went over to address Kittleson and made sure play stopped and kind of, ended a fast break opportunity for the radicals and Madison ended up turning that disc over once players zoomed. And it was the de Klerk sort of running and waving at the end zone break celebration that ensued <laughs> after that good sportsmanship moment. I just, it, it's, it's interesting to me because it I think funny. it shows how much Minnesota is trying to find its confidence right now after years of just enduring heavy losses at Breeze Stevens. You know, I think I think that a lot of these guys have yeah. been waiting a minute to be able to sort of run their mouth a little bit and to be able to to sort of show up and say, you know, we're we're here now, we win these games. Uh and I think I think they like being oh, the bad yeah. guys at Breeze in particular. Like I think if this game was played in Minnesota, would not have had nearly well, as many. Well, that's that's a long-standing just I think Minnesota sports attitude is that uh all right my my home state isn't always <laughs> the best once uh, winning starts happening at sort of uh composing oneself and maybe uh showing showing a modicum of class at certain times. You know I think. I think a lot of Minnesota sports teams kind of have like a braggadocio vibe. I'm thinking of like the Timberwolves this year who who ran around and were like standing on the scoreboard table when they won the playing game to make the eight seed in the NBA playoffs. Like it's, it, there's a little bit of that underdog, we finally made it energy for Minnesota at times. And I, you know, I think, I think after years of sure, having sure. again and doer losses at the hands of the Radicals, it was it, it's a little bit of catharsis for uh for the wind chill but you know they're still looking for that playoff win <laughs> still looking to, they are to right mark in the postseason <laughs> yeah. so Madison you know can just we'll we'll see if there is maybe some uh yeah, cosmic Madison seed always... zone with uh winning you know a week five matchup when there's still another game to be played at Bree stevens between these two teams and <laughs> potentially even a third in the playoffs so you know yeah. How how likely do you think that is oh. at this point? Like right now you know, with I mean and granted we haven't we haven't seen Chicago in a month, but does does this I guess does this game affect your 
your view on either Madison or Minnesota as far as the playoff Not in particular. Go. I, you know, I still kind of expected Minnesota to get one of the home games available to a central playoff team. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think it was more of just this, this was more a game for Madison who was three and oh and expecting to sort of say that they were going to get a home playoff game. This, that was a bigger win for them potentially. Um, I still think that they obviously have enough of their schedule and another matchup at Breeze, and they did close that scoring gap just enough where three goals isn't insurmountable in the, as far as like a head-to-head scoring differential that they might have to, you know, remove right. later on. Like, I, right. I think Minnesota, or excuse me, Madison is still in a good position. It just, it they're now, you know, in a disadvantageous position because they lost a head-to-head matchup with one of their rivals. They they haven't beaten Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. They haven't Every beaten Minnesota one of those since twenty nineteen now. Big. You know? Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It's it's, weird. it's been a pretty quick reversal too, I feel like. I, I think that there's still some sense of, hey, wait a second, what's happening here for both teams a little bit. I think that's why there was such a a, an energy from Minnesota once they took that lead of, hey, look at us. You know, like, I, I think I think this has been a pretty quick reversal after years and years of getting Donnie Brooked in Bree Stevens Field by the Radicals for Minnesota. I think I think that there's some catch up still emotionally for both of these teams as to what's transpired, transpired excuse me, since that opening night in week one of 2021. I, I totally agree. I, I think I'm just excited at this point every single time these two teams meet because it, it doesn't feel like it's like even though Minnesota has been winning all these matchups, none of the wins have been so decisive. Maybe this was the most decisive one we've seen at Breeze. But yeah, just every every game is just going to continue to be competitive. Just looking ahead at their schedule, June 25th, they're going to be playing in Minnesota. And then the very next game for Madison will be back at Breeze, also against the Minnesota Windchill. So those games, I'm sure, are going to be hugely impactful for the playoff standings. So moving really quickly to two matchups, we were really impressed by this last weekend. Uh, DC and Toronto. DC eking out the road win in Toronto after the rush kind of do their offensive uh, shootout thing at home that they've now done in three performances, or I should say the past two uh, at Varsity Stadium for the rush, but mm-hmm. they're just a different team at home uh, this season, and they showed a pretty good breeze defense that on Saturday night scoring 26, uh, DC mustering, of course, 27 to get the win. Uh, Rowan McDonald kind of having a throwback game, I think, in one of the Maybe the most impressive downfield performance for him since 2019. Uh, last year, he was hampered by a hamstring injury and just looked visibly different as a receiver. That was not the case on Saturday night. He was running all over the place, setting up everything for the Breeze offense. Uh, they they had a little bit of a snag in the end of the first quarter, early second. But other than that, they, they too were just kind of having a track field like performance in Toronto. Um, I don't know. There, It didn't feel like there was much to take away from this game as far as 
what these two teams like to do. It it just felt like what happens now against the Canada teams every so often where it's it feels like a video game. It's like a it's like the NBA jam <laughs> version of AUDL where it's just like both teams complete 10 plus hucks. Uh, no one really turns over the disc. Everyone's getting into the offensive sets that they like. I don't know. It's just, it's fun ultimate. It it is fun. For me, it's the takeaway is that Toronto is apparently capable of these extremely efficient games. And I remember reading the, I think it was in the Tuesday toss after they beat Ottawa 29 to 26. One of the Ottawa guys, I forgot which player, he was just saying, he was talking about like Toronto's hucking game. You know, they completed 16 of 18 hucks in that game. And he was just like, yeah, they were just, coming down with all of these big shots downfield. And I think a lot of them were 50-50 balls. Like, it feels like such an unsustainable thing for the Toronto offense. But, yeah, again, 12 of 15 hucks against D.C. They really could not miss, it seemed like, until, I guess, the very end. Maybe the pressure got to them a little bit early than, early, earlier than they There's- wanted it to. They're so young. I mean, that's the thing that just they really <laughs> speaks to this Toronto team. I mean, what? They scored 27 goals, I think, in two games last weekend, and then they put up 26 at home. I, you know, they, they lose all three, but sorry, they... What did... What did... I think they hit 30 last week. They hit 30 was, on the road yeah. in week four? Okay. Yeah, in two games. And then they scored 26 in one game at home. You know, it just right. when when Toronto's feeling it and the young guys are playmaking, particularly the Lewis brothers, James and Wilkie, it it feels like Toronto can hang a lot of points pretty quickly. Uh, Luke Comire is developing as a really nice QB one for them as a thrower um, when he gets his legs underneath of him and can kind of dictate as a motion thrower in that offense. They they look really mm-hmm. interesting, and then the. The player who I think just carries on the lineage of terrific hair and and downfield <laughs> ability is the 18-year-old rookie Oscar Stonehouse. He continues to impress week after week, uh, continues to throw his body around. He he not only looks like a hockey player, he kind of plays like one a little bit. There's just like a, a, I think, a physical dimension to his game where he's willing to lay it out there in space, particularly, even though he's a little undersized. I don't know. I I really like this young rush team. I just they're so far away, I think, from understanding how to win in like a four quarter sense. And you saw that against DC where, you know, two quarters, they're they're hanging with a very, 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 very good breeze team. And then there's just sort of these miscues, execution errors, and everything falls apart. Yeah, right. I mean, just looking at their scoring totals quarter by quarter, they scored six in the first, seven in the second. By the way, DC had exactly those amounts, two in the first half. And then they actually outscored DC nine to eight in the third quarter before only scoring four goals in the fourth quarter. And DC was able to score six. I The... The Breeze, like, they they clearly have the four-quarter consistency. I, I, even though they were down by two very late in the game, it just felt like a matter of time before Toronto would start messing up, and DC was probably never gonna. Toronto might be the most inconsistent team we'll see in the East this season. I think a lot of that just comes back to their hucking game. They have... 
they've completed 12 plus hucks in both of their high scoring games this season. So this past week when they put up 26, then when, when they put up 29 against Ottawa, 12 plus hucks in both those games, seven or fewer in the other three games, which were all losses. I think that, like, to me, that's what it comes down to. If their deep game is clicking and they're they're a team that clearly likes to shoot, they, they're going to be able to hang with teams if they're connecting. It's just such a big if, considering it's a very, it's a highly variable part of any offense. Most offenses. Maybe not Atlanta. That's the well, it, it's very variable for the West team, who was in love with it until week five. Uh, Portland Nitro, who went into their matchup in Seattle having completed 10-plus hucks in every single game of their first three games as a franchise, and then they kind of got upended by the Cascades. Uh, Cascades yeah. came out, got an early lead on the Nitro, uh, and in the second quarter outscored Portland 7-1, to one. and from there it was just kind of a, a laugh for a little bit. Uh, Nitro only completing 88% of their throws. They were 9 of 16 on hucks, and they just couldn't really string together much offense unless they were connecting deep to Leandro Marks and Rafi Hayes and co, right? Um, And Cascade's opportunistic defense sort of pounced all over that. They converted 13 of 22 uh, break attempts. Or sorry, 13 of 28 um, Seattle did, and you know, it was just kind of plays from all over as Seattle does when they've won the past two years. It's it's not consistent. There's not really a, a leader per se, but it's kind of a whole team effort where one one player makes a play and then someone else makes a play and they kind of have this almost gang tackle effect. Uh, I think the play that really set it off, though, is 39-year-old Adam Simons layout block deep on Leandro Marks to get the disc oh, yeah. at one point early that in the game huge. for the Cascades. Uh, I did not know Chicken could still fly like that. That was pretty cool <laughs> for the longtime veteran. Um, and it just, it it symbolized, I think, what we almost anticipated going into this game was that Seattle was 0-5 heading into week five, and it didn't feel like they deserved to be winless. And with the activations of, Adam Simon and Matt Rader and just sort of like the the general I think cosmic goodwill of how they played on the road the week prior that this mm-hmm. is this is kind of an expected outcome for the Cascades. Yeah, well and they played really well on the road without Declan Miller too. Like they were missing a handful of guys and they almost took Declan down San Diego a- and LA. So, yeah, it always felt like they they were one of the best 0 and 5 teams we've seen probably in recent history and they were definitely due for a win for Portland. You know, they just kind of came crashing down to earth. And I think we saw them reveal their weaknesses a bit, which I would identify as a little bit too top heavy, especially when they're missing very central cogs in Eli Friedman and Daniel Lee in that offense, particularly guys that aren't the, the pure shooters of the offense, like they have in Leandro Marks and Rafi Hayes but more balanced pieces that are equally as important, if not more important than the playmakers. I think they were really missing those guys. And and like you said, being reliant on the deep game, like the Nitro have been, it's cool to see a weekend where we see a team like Portland and a team like Toronto, both teams love the deep ball, struggle when teams force them to work the disc up slowly and then see these two very different scoring outcomes where for Portland, it's kind of their 
their floor is a game like this where it's just not working and the shots aren't hitting as consistently as they need to. And meanwhile, every time they don't hit, you're just giving the other team another break opportunity and Seattle capitalized on a lot of those. But of course, we've seen Portland clicking on most of those throughout the season. So it's it's a blip for Portland. It worries me a little bit as far as their playoff implications go. Like we've established all of these games against the non-top four teams in the West. These are going to be critical for those teams to win just to stay in playoff position. We know it's going to be a four-way race for three playoff spots. So this drops Portland to two and two. They're the, and I, they're the only team in that, the top four with two losses right now. Yeah, I was going to say, like, do you, do you view Portland as on the outside looking in? I mean, technically they are in the standings, but I guess, I guess mentally do you now feel like San Diego is in a better spot to get that playoff spot? I mean, logistically, yes, San Diego is logistically yes, but like right now, but feeling wise, I still, I still want to see how San Diego and Portland match up because I think that's going to be very telling. That's kind of a a litmus test for the entire West Division. I think is how Growlers Nitro stack up with each other because there's such different approaches to the game, right? Growlers, yes, Growlers take their huck opportunities, but it's always kind of from continuation looks. They they want to do it as a part of the mechanism of their offense where Nitro are just looking to boost it. They just They're want just to get the disc into space to Leandro Marks. And, you know, that's a pretty good strategy. I just, I want to <laughs> it see, usually works. I want to, I want to yeah. see how it actually matches up in reality before I say that one team has an advantage on the other. But, you know, Portland is the first team to lose to one of kind of those lower teams in the West Division standing. So, yeah, as you point out, that's, that's a big loss. Yeah, I think of the Growlers as having a much higher floor than Portland. Like, I I can't see Portland blowing out the Growlers, but I guess I could see the Growlers potentially blowing out Portland if they have a game like they just did. But of course, they were missing several key pieces that hopefully they'll be more at full strength later in the season. Can uh, can we talk about Declan Milley just really quick? As you mentioned, he missed the team's road trip. Uh, but he came back into play and had 10 total scores, two blocks, uh, and 600 total yards of offense, which actually lowers his season per game average to just over 700 <laughs> yards per game uh, in four appearances Slacking. so far for the Cascades. He's, he's on the eight, decline. He is 18 right now. <laughs> you know, he's got 26 scores in four games, averaging over 700 yards of offense. It does come with a fair amount of throwaways he has three more throwaways in every appearance this year but you know yeah whatever cascade's got a pretty fun fun young core uh right now he's great i i love watching him play and you can just see when the offense is playing like it did and when the whole team is clicking and especially this also felt like one of those classic seattle home games where everyone's just having a good time feeling the energy of the crowd and really clicking on both sides it's it's a good recipe for success for them. And I think Declan is going to continue to be a huge part of their offense the whole season. They've got the break gong going, you know, it is a good time. Yeah. I like the break gong. Is that new this year? Yeah. I think it's, I think it's new this year. It might've had it for a game or two last year though. We'll have to fact check, but. I like when teams have sounds for breaks. Madison still does the break horn, don't they? Oh yeah. High decibel. Good. 
They just yeah, couldn't do yeah, it much yeah. this past weekend. But <laughs> right. We will be back on Thursday to preview week six action. Thank you so much for listening to Swing Pass. If you can, give us a five-star rating on whatever listening platform you're listening to this on. And again, thanks as always, and we'll talk to you soon.